0: morning. Let me begin with... Oh yeah? We'll have to zoom in and see if uh, we can see a picture of you. (laughs) All right, let's uh, pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this time. We uh, do pray for Uh, Bill Wilson this morning. We pray that you would be with him and and, uh, help him to be strengthened with the therapy coming up. And uh, we pray that you'd give wisdom uh, as there's a potential surgery still. And uh, we just ask for your help in his life. Thank you for uh, your Word and how it instructs us and how it shows us uh, what you expect of us and of our church and how to interpret the Scriptures. We ask for your help as we do that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Bill did not have surgery on Friday. He uh, he um, still having trouble with his legs, and um, but uh, he's supposed to find out I think this Tuesday what the next step is. So he he is supposed to have therapy um, uh, at the very least. So do be in prayer for him. Well, this morning we want to look at the church and dispensationalism. Uh, how does how how ought to we to look at the church and one of the key distinctions that I've said from the very beginning with regard to uh, dispensationalism uh, over and against covenant theology is that dispensationalism sees a distinction between Israel and the church. And that is one of the key distinctions of dispensational theology. And I've basically stated that multiple times, but today I want to show you from the Scriptures why that is true. Okay? Okay. Because what we can do is we can look at a certain area of understanding the scriptures, and we can just do it based on assumptions. And and this class, I think, will be helpful in in uh, allowing us to see that that um, this is clearly what is teach, taught, what is taught, what is taught in scripture. All right. So um, let me just give a, a the distinction here that that set up that. If we want to look at the difference between covenant theology or dispensational theology and covenant theology, um, <clears throat> there are two things that separate them with regard to their understanding of the church. One is the timing, timing of its beginning. Okay? When does the church begin in the scriptures? And then secondly, what is the nature of the church? What, what is the makeup? Of, what is the essence of the church? Okay, so those two things really distinguish both of these areas of theology, and today we want to pursue what both of those are. First, the time of the church's beginning. What do you think people who follow covenant theology see as the beginning of the church? What what time period do they do you think they think it begins? No. Okay. Probably actually before that. If we want to be real generic, we just say the Old Testament. Remember? Because covenant theology sees the church and Israel as the same. Right? So, when does Israel begin? Before that? Right. Abraham. Abraham at covenant. Israel always points themselves back to Abraham. Actually, there are some covenant uh, people who believe that, that it goes back, the church that is, goes all the way back to Adam. Because they see that all believers of all time are exactly the same. They're all church people. They're all uh, Christians in a very loose sense. So, uh, for example, let me just uh, read for you Charles Hodge. I didn't put this on your handout. But Charles Hodge, uh, he is a a person who follows covenant theology. He says, The church under the new dispensation is identical with that under the Old. Okay, so there's the key thing. The church is identical as it was in the Old Testament, is what he's saying. Not a new church, but one in the same. It's the same olive tree. It's founded on the same covenant, the covenant made with Abraham. So what we need to, to be able to argue for or defend against is whether or not the church actually started with Abraham. Okay, there are some again who who take it all the way back to Adam, but for the most part, they point back to um, to Abraham. When do you think? Uh, when do you when when do you suppose the church started? According to our understanding of uh, of the scriptures, when do you think the church started? Okay, a little bit after that, Pentecost, right? Pentecost. Okay, so. The church was a part of God's plan. This is not something that was like, okay, now we've got to figure out something new. God, God obviously had this in His plan from eternity past. But it starts here at, at Pentecost. All right. So there's the difference. Abraham or Adam for covenant, covenant theology. And then we see it starting here after the resurrection at Pentecost. So let me give you five proofs from the Scriptures that the church did not exist before Pentecost. Five proofs for why the church did not exist before Pentecost. Number one, the church was formed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The church was formed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to be bouncing around to several passages of Scripture this morning, and I may ask you to read a couple of those, so... 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Okay, so verse 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. This is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This, is, this happens to every single believer since the time of Pentecost all the way until the time of the rapture, that people will be baptized into the body of Christ. That is, that they are uh, positionally put into a place of, of connection with Christ's body. Okay, That we are made one with Him, with all the other believers. The expression of that, the way that we... Uh, because that does happen automatically at salvation, Okay, the baptism of the Spirit... We are to join ourselves to a local church okay that's the expression of it, similar to um uh, the idea of a, a baptism okay baptism of the spirit should be expressed in in the baptism uh the water baptism that is um, so because we're made members of christ's body, we should be made members of christ's church a local church specifically all right so here we have. Uh, what is uh, clearly speaking of, I think, a universal body of Christ. A universal that all people are joined to the one body of Christ. Now turn to Acts chapter 19 because here we see that the baptism of the Spirit was not something that happened to Old Testament saints. Well, that doesn't... All right, well, something new every week. Um, Acts chapter 19. Let's read verses uh, 1-4. through It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Okay, here Paul arrives in Ephesus and he speaks to them as believers. Look at verse 1. At the end of the verse it says, he found some disciples. And then notice the question he asked in verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, to us this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. When you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. Why would they not receive the Holy Spirit? All right, and I think the answer to that question comes um, in our understanding of in what way they're receiving the Holy Spirit. Okay, because we understand that no person can come to belief in God without the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, even in the Old Testament, an Old Testament saint would have to come to faith in God, but he'd have, he'd do it through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit would, would be the one that would take the Word and implant it in his heart, turn that, as uh, Jeremiah says, turn that heart of stone into flesh. Okay, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So, what we have here are actually believers. Okay, They're believers, and they have received the Holy Spirit in some sense, but they don't understand in what sense Paul's talking about. Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And uh, And they said, well, actually, notice verse 3, Uh, We were baptized into John's baptism. Okay, now turn... Keep a finger here because we're going to come back here. But turn to Mark chapter 1 because I want to show you what John was preaching first. And then I'll show you what his baptism meant. First, what was John preaching? John chapter 1, verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so now turn to chapter eleven, verse thirty. So John's preaching a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John chapter eleven, and uh, here Jesus is questioned, or yeah, he's questioned, verse twenty-seven. Um, They began asking him, by what authority do you do do these things? And Jesus says, here, I'll tell you what. I'll answer your question if you answer mine. All right. And here's his question. Verse 29. I will ask you one question and you answer me. Then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. All right. So, So here he puts them into a little bit of a quandary. They know that if they say it was uh, from men, then, uh, then the crowd would riot against them. But if they said that it was from heaven, that is from God, then Jesus would say to them, well, then why didn't you believe in it? Okay, so they recognize that John's baptism is actually from heaven, but because they don't want to answer that question, because they would have to believe, then they equivocate and they say, you know what, we don't know. When they really did, Mark lays out the commentary what they were thinking and and so on it's very uh, it's a very interesting passage to, to study okay but the point that I'm trying to make from this passage is that John's baptism was from heaven it wasn't another gospel okay it was it was the same gospel with more revelation than there was before in the Old Testament John's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, I have have Luke chapter 3, verse 16 there on your handout. It says, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's saying, listen, I'm not baptizing you in the way that Christ will baptize you. And hey, Christ is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring uh, the Holy Spirit with great power. That's not that's not my message. Okay? I'm pointing forward to Him who will do that. And notice that that um, that this is going to happen. In Acts chapter one, verses four through five. You see that at the bottom of your handout. Gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised which He said, You heard of from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay? Not many days from now. When were they talking about there? Talking about Pentecost. Okay? We're in Acts 1. We just read Acts 2 is when Pentecost happens. That's when the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes on. That's when the church begins. So now turn back to Acts chapter 19 because... What I want to show you is that these people were believers but they were not Christians. Okay, let me let me just uh hope you understand the difference. All right, I'm having. Yeah. All right. This gives you time to you know kind of take all this stuff in, think about it all right i want I want you to understand the difference between believers and Christians, okay because what these people here are they're they're believers but they're not Christians, okay all people who come to faith in God from the time of Adam all the way till the end of of uh of the kingdom, those would be considered believers. Okay, you understand that? We could call, also call them saints. Hebrews ten, Hebrews eleven calls them saints of old. Right, so they're they're old testament saints. We have, so we have in here old testament saints. Okay, one portion of that. These are all the people that got saved from the time of Adam all the way to the time of Pentecost. You have tribulation saints. This is not very helpful, just kind of writing anywhere. But is there tribulation saints? And then you have Christians. Okay, so Christians are actually a subset of believers. So, what I don't want you to think when you're looking at Acts 19, and I say, okay, these, these were believers, but they're not Christians. All Christians are believers. But not all believers are Christians, right? All Christians are believers. So here's what's going on here with this baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's baptizing them into the body of Christ, making them a part of the church. The, when we say church here, we're talking about the universal church. All believers from the time of Pentecost. Now look, look at Acts 19 again. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who is coming after Him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Alright, so they were believers. They believed in John's baptism. That is, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit as far as this baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And so when Paul explains it to them, this is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Then that's when they receive the Holy Spirit and then they're added to the church. Okay? Um, Let me take you to the next one. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? The church was formed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All right. The way that we get entrance into the universal body of Christ is by being baptized in the Holy Spirit. That didn't happen with Old Testament saints. All right. Number two. Second reason we know that the church did not exist in the Old Testament or before Pentecost, we should say, is because the Holy Spirit related with believers in unique ways that is unique from how He dealt with people in the Old Testament. Uh, We know this uh, for several reasons. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come in a special way. He said, unless I go away from you, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, cannot come. The Comforter can't come. What He was saying is uh, that the Holy Spirit cannot come and baptize you into My body until I go. Yes. What's that? Uh, the yep. To out, okay, he, right. I mean, right, there was a gap. Yeah. But his point was that after I go away, not he didn't say immediately after, the very second after I go away. But he said, after I go away, then the hum- comforter will come. So, so, Acts 1 is when he actually go- ascends into heaven, Acts 1.11. And then they go and pray. He says, just wait here in the room. And they say and they pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And Acts 2 is when he actually comes. Okay, then the Holy Spirit comes. So, yeah, you do have a period of uh, several days, I think, before the Holy Spirit actually comes. Yeah, well there's multiple things that happened there. One is they had the ability to speak in tongues, which uh basically showed their um it, it showed the credibility of the message that they were going to be proclaiming. Okay, but it also baptized them into the body of Christ. But that couldn't happen here. We'll we'll talk about this more as we move on because um uh we're going to see that he had to be ascended at the very least. Um So, the the Comforter didn't come while Christ was there. Jesus talks about this in John 14 and John 16. The church confirmed that it was something new. Turn to Acts chapter 11. The church confirmed that, that this was something new. Can someone read verses 15 and 16 for us? Okay, so so Peter here says, now it makes sense. John used to say that. He used to say, I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit came on us, it made sense. That this was something brand new that the, that the Holy Spirit would work in this way. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3 because we see here that, that this is the mystery that Paul was talking about. That is the mystery of the church. That this church was really brand new in their minds. I mean, how could it be that Jews and Gentiles would coexist as equals? Uh, that, That would be unheard of prior to this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, "...that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief." By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Okay, so the mystery that Paul is talking about is the mystery of the church. God had known that mystery eternally, obviously, but this this idea of the church was unclear to people prior to the time of the apostles. It was Christ who first said in Matthew chapter 16, in fact, that's going to be one of our points later, that I will build my church. I will build my church. So. So Christ recognized, uh, or Christ kind of uh, foreshadowed what was going to hap- happen in His teaching, but man knew nothing about it until the time of the apostles. And that's because the church did not exist before the time of the apostles. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. There was, in fact, uh, no revelation about the church in the Old Testament that I am aware of. Um only that the Gentiles would share in the blessings of salvation. But, but other than that, there's there's nothing about uh, the church that is that we are going to be a part of the body of Christ in some way. And so the church was not formed until that time. So unique ways um, is the the fact that the, the Holy Spirit re- related with believers in unique ways. Um, suggest that it it was before Pentecost it was not before Pentecost. the church did not exist before that time. in fact, it had to happen after the death of Christ. in fact, listen to acts twenty verse twenty eight The Church of God was purchased with his own blood okay it was purchased with his own blood, so that sounds like he has to have shed the blood before the church can be purchased um So what we learn from this is that this unification between Jew and Gentile came through or comes through the blood of Christ. Before that, Gentiles were alienated from Jews, and now they are joined together in this one body. We'll talk about that more here in just a second. Number three, the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. The foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. Look at chapter 2. Verse 20, uh, verse 19, we'll start in verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, we could argue well, if it says prophets, what prophets are we talking about? Right? Doesn't it sound like it could be the Old Testament prophets? So the church is is the foundation of the church is Old Testament prophets, and then wouldn't that prove that the church was there in the Old Testament and that the church in Israel are the same? Okay. But look at chapter two, um, uh, chapter chapter three, excuse me, verse five. Well, let's start at verse four because. The prophets here that that, that uh, Paul is talking about are actually New Testament prophets. By referring to this verse four, when you read you when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has, and here's the key word now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets in the Spirit. Okay, so in chapter two, verse twenty, when it says that that the foundation of the church is the the apostles and prophets, then the apostles and prophets that Paul are, is talking about, we can find from the context three five. The apostles and prophets who have now received this revelation. Okay, so what we're talking about here is is uh, the New Testament prophets. So the foundation is. The apostles and New Testament prophets. Number four, Christ promised to build his church. Familiar passage, Matthew chapter 16, Christ says, I will build my church. Now, prior to that, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had presented himself to to Israel as their Messiah. What did they do? What did Israel do as a result of Jesus coming to them as their Messiah? They rejected him, right? So they rejected Jesus as Messiah. He said, listen, the kingdom of God is near. If you will just accept me, the kingdom of God will come. And they rejected him. And so Jesus changes his program. He changes it to, now, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And immediately after that, verses 20 and 21 in chapter 16, he says, and I, there's something else I need to tell you. I'm not going to live Forever. Okay? Uh, as your king. I'm not going to set up my kingdom right now. He says, I'm actually going to die. And after three days, I will rise again. Remember what Peter said to him? No, no not so, my Lord. That's not going to happen. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Okay? Jesus was starting to lay out his new program for the church. He's saying, Verse 18, I will build my church. Verses 20 and following, he says, I'm going to die. Why do you think the two things are revealed at the same time? The answer is because they're connected. He had to die in order for the church to come into play. Okay, So Christ promised to build his church, that it was going to be future. So if he's promising something that will be future, then the the, um, church had to exist. Uh, at Pentecost or could not exist before that time. Number five, Christ could not be head of the church until He ascended to heaven. Okay, this goes back to what um, Jonathan was asking earlier. Turn to chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 18. Ephesians 1, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the work of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things into subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body and fullness of Him who fills all in all. So Christ's headship of the church could not happen until His ascension. I think that's what Paul is is getting at here. Alright, so for those five reasons, I would suggest to you that the church did not exist before Pentecost. The baptism of the Spirit is what uh puts a person into the universal body of Christ. Christ had to be ascended. Christ had promised that the church would come. All right. And um and the foundation of it certainly is the apostles and prophets. Any uh questions? What was your reference again? Ephesians one, eighteen to twenty three. questions all right clear as mud all right so there's two two distinctions primarily between dispensational theology and covenant theology with regard to their understanding of the church one is the timing okay they say that that it begins with Abraham we say it begins at Pentecost the second is the nature of the church now covenant theology sees the church as uh, a continuing covenant uh, community Let me uh, get off of there. There we go. Um, I better go to the first one here for you. Write down all the answers. All right. The covenant theology sees the church as a continual covenanted covenanted community of God's people throughout history. They would say that the church consists of all people who had the covenant of grace. Here's what one uh, of their... um, Followers, or one of the people that follow, understand this way, Louis Burkhoff famous theologian. The church existed in the old dispensation as well as in the new, and it was essentially the same in both. Okay, so so here's where they come up with their understanding: that the church and Israel are the same, because of part part part. A lot of it has to do with their understanding of the timing of it, but it also comes down to the, the nature of the church that the. Church and Israel are the same. That there's no distinctive groups of saints. Okay, so that circle that I made earlier, where I was saying there's, you know, you compartmentalize all the different believers or saints. They would say, no, they're all church saints. They're all a part of the church. And all saints of history have been members of, or are members of the church. And they say that the same thing is true in the tribulation. Um... And as a result, there is only one resurrection. And so, what this is going to affect, and this is why, okay, this is why this teaching is so important. It's going to affect our understanding of the end time events. And here's why: if we think that the Israel and the church are the same, okay, um, then there's only going to be one resurrection for all believers. One resurrection. And if that's the case, that there's only one resurrection for all believers, then there can't be any... Okay, if, if we, have a, we can't have a pre-tribulational rapture. What I mean by that is Christ can't rapture His church before the tribulation. Why? There's believers throughout the tribulation, right? So, what this leads to is actually a post-tribulational rapture view. What that means is that Christ actually come, that we're actually going to have to go through the tribulation. Uh, Because uh, there there have to be some believers on the earth. And if Christ is going to rapture his church, wouldn't the church include Old Testament saints, New Testament saints and tribulation saints? So that would have to happen at the very end of the tribulation. So what they do is they delay Christ's rapture, not at the beginning of the tribulation, but all the way at the end. Christ raptures His saints, and then He brings them back quickly to finish at Armageddon. Okay, so you don't actually have anybody uh, having... I don't understand how they would answer this question. How do you have people reproducing in the in the millennial kingdom? Okay, with with my understanding of the Scripture and what I'm trying to show you is that... <clears throat> That there will be people who survive the tribulation, believers. They will survive the tribulation, make it into the kingdom, and that's where you'll get all these this this offspring, several generations of people who actually reject the Messiah in the kingdom, who will make up the people at the end of the. I'm running out of room over here, but make up the end of the uh, the uh, the rebellious forces against Christ at the end of the kingdom okay when during the time of the kingdom the 1000 years um, Satan and uh, the false prophet and the uh, the Antichrist are thrown into the abyss okay uh, Satan actually is thrown into the abyss the other two are thrown in the lake of fire Satan's left in the abyss is basically as a holding cell for the time of the kingdom, the 1,000 years. At the very end of that, he's released to do damage, basically. One final time to try to do damage to Christ. And the way he does it is he, he gathers up all these forces who have been basically sitting and hiding. They've been uh, basically uh, uh, living a life that's, uh, that's basically external conformity type thing. Uh, because with Christ as king, he's going to judge those who oppose him uh, specifically according to their deeds. And uh, and so apparently there's going to be people who reject him and Satan's going to gather up all these nations of people. So what I'm trying to say is, it, is if we understand that the church and Israel are the same, then we don't really have... Sorry about that. Tried uh, something new today without the power cord, so um, it's uh, not helping. But um, So if we understand the church and Israel are the same, then we're going to have a different view of, of what Christ does in the end times. And that's why I think it's important. Um, we have clear Scripture that tells that Christ will rapture His church, that Christ will keep us from the hour of testing. Revelation 3.10. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is Christ's message to the churches. To the churches a okay, his body his these little local assemblies of people who follow him and and those bodies of believers are the ones who he says I'm going to protect you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole earth he's talking about the tribulation and uh and so that basically affects uh our view and that's why I think it's it's critical that we We understand these things rightly because it not only will change our view of or it will affect our view of how we look at the Old Testament, but also of the prophecies. All right, that was a long introduction, but basically we need to to see from the Scriptures that or or not all these are from the Scriptures, but some of them are logical or theological proofs. Uh, Seven proofs that Israel and the church are not the same. Number one, Israel was a political nation. The church is not. Okay, they had a national language. They had an earthly capital government or, or capital city. They had a government. They had political rulers. The New, church, New Testament church is not uh, a political nation. They do not have an earthly capital city. They do not have an earthly political government. They do not have political rulers. They don't have one language Okay. Right? Do we have churches in any other part of the world that have more than one language? Mark. Well, the Roman Catholic Church is a and their official language is Latin. Yeah. Well, if uh, if the Catholic Church were true, then covenant theology might be true too. But Catholic, Church, see, that doesn't apply in this case. Right. Right. Yeah, and that may come from the reason they may force that on the issue is because of their understanding. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about Catholic theology or, or its origins enough to answer that. But but the point is, we're talking about the true church. Okay, I want to maybe I just need to clarify there. Number two, because we do uh, need to get moving. Number two, Israel rejected Christ as the Messiah. The church received him. I'm trying to show that the church and Israel are not the same. John 1.11 says, Jesus came unto His own, that is to Israel, but His own did not receive Him. That's talking about Israel. Verse 12 says this, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the privilege, the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. So, Israel rejected the Messiah. And they will do this all the way until the end of this dispensation. They will reject the Messiah as a whole nation. But the church does not reject the true church. Okay, I'm talking about the true church. We got um, Because sometimes when I make those statements of uh, Christendom or Christian, sometimes we can talk about more broadly and we can talk about actually non-Christians are included in there. But, but again, true church received Him. Number three. We know they're distinct because Israel persecuted the church, right? Start with Acts 4 and start working your way through Acts and and you find that the people of Israel actually hated the church and they persecuted the church. So if Israel and the church are the same, how does this happen? Right? Number four, uncircumcised Gentiles were always excluded from Israel. However, there are no Jewish requirements to be a part of the church. Okay? Uncircumcised Gentiles were always excluded from Israel. If you wanted to become a proselyte, a member of the Israel uh, the Jewish covenant community, as a man you would have to be circumcised or you would be completely excluded from all the blessings that come. Now we know that's not the case now because of Acts 15. Acts 15 is the Jerusalem council. And uh, J- James there and Peter, uh, James I believe was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and Peter and several other people on the council, many of the apostles I think were there, if not all of them. And, and they talk about, okay, in past times Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to come into our community. What about now with regard to the church? You know how they came down? They said, we can't force this on them. Okay. All people are are allowed to be a part of the local church, Jew and Gentile. Number five, Israel was made up of believers and unbelievers. The true church is made up only of believers. Okay, Do you recognize that Israel had a special covenant with God, but you could be a part of Israel and receive some of those blessings? But you can't receive some of the blessings that are designed for the true church if you're not a member of the true church. When I say that, I'm talking about universally. If you're not a believer, a Christian. Okay, so the true church is not made up of, of unbelievers, whereas Israel did include some unbelievers. Okay, so again, this is trying to show that, that the church and Israel are distinct. Number six, Scripture never calls saved Jews the Church of God. In fact, in First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirty two, it distinguishes between the Jews and the Church of God. Now, again, the Jews can be a subset of the church. Now this this is why this transition is in acts is so critical to understand because now the Jews can be a part of the church. But before, it was like this. Okay, This was God's program. If you wanted to be uh, receiving God's blessing, you had to be a Jew. So Gentiles had to become, in some way, a Jew. They had to become, become a Jew by right. But this changes. Okay, with With God working through the church, and the Jews are actually become a subset of the church. And that's why Acts is such a transitional book. It's transitioning from a completely different way of life. The Jews are never called the church of God, so, so we can't say that they are equal. Then finally, Paul teaches that they are distinct in Romans chapter 11. He teaches that the Old Testament Israel and the church are distinct. He states that Old Testament Israel was in the place of God's blessing, but because they rejected Christ in unbelief, they are temporarily removed from his blessing the new church has now been put in the place of blessing now the jews are going to be at the center of what god's doing in the future at the tribulation particularly but right now it's the church so historically it was okay if we want to look at if we want to look at god's blessing It was the Jews who were at the center. Okay, but now they have been set aside. And now it's the church who is receiving God's blessing. But the Jews are going to be brought back. But in the meantime, it's the church who's at the center of God's blessing. And that's what Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 11. The Jews at the end of the tribulation will receive as a nation, they will receive Christ. They will accept Him. Many of them will be killed. Um, <clears throat> but there will be many who will remain and they will receive Him and that's when their King will come, the Messiah. Alright, so the two main distinctions when it comes to our understanding of the church is the timing of the church and the nature of the church. The timing, we believe, started at Pentecost and that has a lot to do with our understanding of the baptism of the Spirit and Christ's teaching on the church. And the nature of the church uh, seems to be clear from Scripture that the church and Israel are not the same. And so we have to make a distinction somehow. And this is uh, this will affect all of our understanding. Not all of our understanding, but a lot of our understanding of parts of Scripture that have to do with Israel and of the church. Um, and uh, so hopefully that is helpful because I have been working through this and uh, in some cases making assumptions. I can't explain everything that's going on with dispensational theology in one week. <clears throat> I have a hard time just doing what I have to do, uh, what's given in that section. But hopefully that's helpful because I don't want you to just assume, okay, the church in Israel are distinct. I want you to be able to see that from the Scripture. So I loaded you up on that handout with lots of other scriptures that we didn't have time to look at. And so I'd encourage you, uh, particularly if you're still thinking through this and trying to wrestle with these things in your minds to, to, to um, take a look at that. Any questions or comments? All right. Okay, next week we're going to look at the end times and dispensationalism. Again, this is going to... um, Our understanding of of how God lays out His program affects uh, our view of the end times. And so we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this beautiful mystery that You have revealed to the apostles um, and have passed on to us through their uh, writings. And we pray that You would help us to... Uh, just treasure this most valuable gift that uh, we are able to be a part of Christ's body in a way that Old Testament believers were not able to <clears throat> and uh, we pray that you would help us to not only treasure it but to um, to uh, pass it on to other people and help them to see the great glory of the church um, that you have a special place for the church in heaven and, and in eternity and uh, not because we are Um, deserving of it in any way, but because simply of Your grace, because Jesus died for us and rose for us. We pray that You'd help us to live for Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.